Please take your Bibles, and if you are able to stand for our scripture reading this morning, we'll be reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 8. Exodus, chapter 8, beginning in verse 20, the fourth plague flies. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am Yahweh in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And Yahweh did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said it would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to Yahweh our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to Yahweh our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to Yahweh your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with Yahweh that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to Yahweh. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to Yahweh, and Yahweh did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Amen. May we give heed to the word of our God this morning. Please be seated. Let us go to the Lord an additional time before we come to the, the preaching of the, his word. Heavenly Father, we do pray. We pray that your spirit would guide us, guide our ears that we might hear properly, that we might comprehend, grasp, and apply for your glory and our desperate need of you and the transforming work you do in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning's message is entitled, Yahweh, a God of Distinction. And we, we get the opportunity this morning to, to really see what it looks like for for. Yahweh to be set apart as distinct and different. His people are learning. The Egyptians are learning this. And I want to use an example to get our minds thinking before we get to the actual text. I want to ask you if you've ever known someone who was not a person of distinction, somebody who really more or less represented the culture. And I'm going to use a word that might help you get an idea of that, um, there are uh, fads that come and go in culture. There is a m- ever-progressing hipness 
that culture promotes. What was hip in the 50s is not hip now. But that hip status changes. And we can all remember whether it was our childhood or, or some part of our life. It even could be now. And you look around and what the, the world promotes is the person who has just the right hair in the right manner. They have just the right clothes that communicate exactly what needs to be communicated to a world. And they have just the right sayings to unleash on their followers at the right time that they get all of the worship that they are intending to gain. And yet, oftentimes, particularly as you're older, you look back or you follow these people and you realize there's not much content. These people were so after what the culture said they should be, what they thought was a distinct hipness was an indistinct person, an indistinct personality. They just faded into the culture, and when the culture moved on, the culture left them. They, were, they had nothing distinct to themselves, or they were at least lacking distinction. Well, today we're going to see the unique and distinct self-existing God announce a distinct division between the people of the Israelites, his own people, and the Egyptians. And we're going to take a look at what that di division is and how it is that Yahweh announces this division, and we can comprehend in this announcement the purpose. This isn't just a division for division's sake. This is a, a division that fulfills God's greater purpose, God's greater plan of salvation. So let, we get a chance to take a look at that this, this morning. If you'll turn over in your bulletins to the, the back page where I've got the, the outline for uh, the message today, you'll see the, the challenge written. I do want to add a word. It's interesting how sometimes you go to print, especially when you're the printer, before you are, are I should say, before the Lord is done working out in your mind some of what you're trying to convey. So I'm going to add a word here, and you may want to write it in. But the challenge today is, as you ponder the arrival of Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday this coming week, ponder the plague that Christ, and here's the, the additional word, distinctly bore on your behalf and allow God to change what is needed in your heart. I'll read it again. As you ponder the arrival of Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday this coming week, Ponder the plague that Christ distinctly bore on your behalf and allow God to change what is needed in your heart. Well, let's get to the, the background section of this. Each week, um, I, I read off, and I'm going to read again today, the background information. It's a compilation of, of the ancient Near East, so we can get the context right, and we understand this not through the, through the lens of maybe our hip society, but maybe correctly through the lens of what was going on in the ancient Near East. So we're going to take a look at this, uh, how Yahweh is going to deal with the, the, this number four false god. And, and I say it that way because we understood, this is, or we have come to the point of understanding that we have seen the other three plagues, they are all a polemic or an attack on one of the false gods. 
of the, of the Egyptians. They are also an act of decreation. God is showing that he is the God of creation, and he is the only one that can decreate. He brings punishment by decreating, and we'll see that today. So if you'll bear with me as I read this, I think you will find this interesting. It's not long. The background first as it relates to the polemic or the attack on Kepri is the name of the false god here that he's dealing with, as best we can tell. Kepri's full name is Kepura Keper de, de Jesef, which can be translated as, listen carefully, the one who creates himself or the one who becomes or who becomes from himself. Dangerously close to Yahweh's name that, that Moses asked of him, what name shall I call you or by? What, what name shall, when they inquire, the Israelites inquire of you, and he says, I, I, basically he says, I am, which is Yahweh. I am the one who is self-existent would be another way of understanding this. So you can see the, the reason or the logic behind God attacking this false god of Egypt to make sure there's no confusion. There is only one self-existent God. Kepri was also known as the creator God. If you haven't started to pick up yet, there's some inconsistencies in the Egyptian gods. There's a whole lot of them getting credit for creating things. And they all step in each other's territory. And it seems like, well, who created it? Did you or you or you? Kepri was also known as the creator God and was, and was represented by a scarab beetle. If you need a picture in your mind, think of the dung beetle. That is the one in the same beetle. As one of the most potent symbols of ancient Egypt, the scarab beetle symbolized transformation. Hmm, that sounds awful like God's, God, our God, Yahweh's territory. Birth, resurrection, the sun, and protection. More reason why, why our God is going after this false God to make sure the Egyptians, as well as the Israelites, understand this is a false god. In ancient Egypt, the scarab beetles were widely worshipped and they weren't allowed to be killed because people feared it would offend Kepri. It was customary for both royals and commoners to be buried with scarab or ornaments and emblems representing justice and balance, the protection of the soul, and its guidance to the afterlife. And this is where it gets a little weird. It was believed that the scarab had the power to guide the souls into the underworld and help them during the ceremony of justification when faced with ma'at, the feather of truth. And we understood that uh, Pharaoh is the one who is tasked. He is, he is the incarnate son. Well, that sounds scary to what, what we know of Jesus Christ, of Ra. He's the, the God in flesh on earth in their system that's supposed to... to carry out ma'at, which is this concept of harmony. Well, that's another reason why God does decreation. Yahweh moves things back. He takes things out of the harmonious balance and say, okay, Pharaoh, no matter what God I'm dealing with, what's happening to ma'at? You can't stop what I bring in the form of decreation and judgment because I am the only creator. Let's continue on. In this fourth plague, Yahweh attacks the Egyptian god Kepri, who was pictured with the body of a man and the head of a scarab beetle. Yahweh sent swarms of mixed flying insects, we'll talk more about that in a little bit, to assault the Egyptians. Kepri, the, be the beetle-headed god, was powerless to stop the swarms of insects and was rendered impotent in the eyes of the Egyptians. The false god of creation was no match for the only 
the one and only God over creation. And now as it relates to decreation, once again, Yahweh used an insect to rule over the Egyptians. The order has been reversed. Man is supposed to have dominion over the, the realm of, of the earth, the, the, the realms, the, the sky, the land, and the sea. And now we see God bringing the, the curse, if you will, the plague upon man, and particularly upon the Egyptians, because the insects rule over them by way of oppression. Once again, Yahweh used an insect to rule over the Egyptians, decreating or moving backward the good order of, of dominion established at creation. Yahweh brought chaos to the created order as a form of punishment upon the Egyptians. So here we see that Yahweh is, is the distinctly powerful God. He is the only self-existing God. And he is using what he is doing in the plagues to advance his plan of salvation. I'm hoping you're starting to see that this understanding of the plagues is multidimensional. We have seen that it deals with uh, Pharaoh. It deals with the false gods. It deals with decreation, as well as a polemic, an attack by God on the false god. And today, it's, we're going un, un, to reveal another dimension that gets revealed in the Hebrew that doesn't come out in the English. And hopefully we'll get to see it and go, wow, this, our God is an amazing God. He's not just doing one thing on this stage. He is doing multiple things in his plan of salvation. So let's first look at a distinct people set apart and treated excellently. So first we'll deal with a distinct people. Exodus 8, 20 to 24. Then Yahweh said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself. In other words, he's saying confront, to ta- and that, that word means to take a stand or to take your station, like you're standing in front of Pharaoh and, say, and he's coming out to the, to the water and you're saying, no, I've got business with you. That's what's going on here. As he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says Yahweh, let my people go that they may serve me. This is a direct command. You need to know it's a direct command because a command implies you must have obedience to that command. That's going to play in later on in our passage today. And he continues on in verse 21. Or else, if you will not let my people go, we're going to see Moses. It's inspired Moses, but I love when Moses does this in the languages. He starts to, to, to allow the Spirit to show him word plays that he can use here in his speech that God has given him. He says, or else, if you will not let my people go, in the Hebrew it says, or else, if, if you do not let my people be sent out, Behold, I will send out swarms. He's doing that. Either you send my people out or I'm sending out the swarms. Pick your choice. Doesn't that sound like confrontational language? That's because it's, that's what it's designed to do this, in this polemic. He's pushing back. God is saying, I'm the only God, and he's working through Moses in this manner. And the, the word there for swarms is swarms. It doesn't say swarms of flies. In the Hebrew, you have to know the context to fill in what the swarm is. So the, the translators put in flies. It's something that we can visualize. It's a flying insect. But the word uh, swarms there gives a little additional hint, and it's the idea of a mixture of insects. All we know for sure is that these are a biting insect. Some of them say they are... A, uh, horse flies or dog flies that actually bite and, and take blood from the, the surface. This is not an annoying fly. 
Whatever insect these are, a mixture of them, they are biting flies. Think about, have you ever been bit by a horsefly? Man, they get your attention in a hurry. You're like, ooh, this is not a housefly I'm dealing with. Um, this is a, this, wow, I've got to keep my eye out for this type of fly. Well, I'm going to refer to, every time they say flies, I'm just going to say insects, because I want you to be thinking more broadly. Let's continue on. I will send out swarms of insects on you, and listen to how he's going to cover the whole gamut here, you, your servants, and your people. In other words, all the Egyptians. There's none left out of that understanding. And into your houses, all of the people's houses, and the houses of the Egyptians will be filled with swarms of insects and also the ground on which they stand. I hope you're getting a little grossed out. That's a whole lot of insects. If they're able to fill the ground, so to speak, almost like I think of the ground looking as if it's moving, get an idea how many there are. Get an idea. Can you breathe? Anybody ever swallowed in a, a gnat when you were yawning or something like that? You find yourself hacking? How many flies are flying or, or, or insects are flying where you best not open your mouth, cover your eyes? Can you drink? What can, you, can you make food? They're everywhere. I want that grotesque picture in there because that's what he's portraying. Because he's going to continue on. He's going to say to what degree these flies oppress the people. He's going to get more descriptive here. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with the swarms of insects and, they, and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart. The word is pala in, in the uh, Hebrew. It means to make a distinction by treating excellently or with significant favor. Ah, we're starting to hear the development of grace. The, the theme of I'm going to treat you I'm going to interact with you significantly different than the way I interact with the others. I'm going to treat you with, with excellence, with significant favor. And we're starting to hear themes be pulled in, for uh, salvific themes. He continues on, the, uh, uh, I will set apart the land of Goshen. That's where the Israelites are, are living. That's where God placed them to grow them up from a, from a, a family of 70 into a large nation where my people dwell, so that no swarms of insects may, excuse me, shall be there, that you may know that I am Yahweh in the midst of the earth. Ooh, another big concept. Chapter 3, angel of the Lord shows up, and the angel of the Lord, who we know as the second person of the Trinity, later in the passage, after Exodus 12, identifies himself and calls himself as Yahweh. So we understand which person he's at, interacting with. In that verse... Yahweh, the, the angel of the Lord, and manifested in the uh, excuse me, the Yahweh manifested in the angel of the Lord. Let Moses, the fearful Moses, the Moses that hasn't seen God take on these gods yet, hasn't seen the power of God in the plagues yet, is fearful. And God says to him, the angel of the Lord says to him, "I'm going to be with you." Here's a reminder: I'm in the midst of the people. He's letting Pharaoh know. Moses knows it. Moses knows the power. Moses is a believer in the power. If he didn't experientially know God before, he gets it now. And now it's time, over this progression of these plagues, for more and more for Pharaoh and the Egyptians to know the power. When he says, when Yahweh says he's in the midst, he is there. I'm not suggesting he's in human form, but I'm suggesting he's as present as he is present through the person of the Holy Spirit with us now. I'm not saying in us. 
That doesn't happen until later in the progression of, of redemption. But uh, you've got to get the concept that Yahweh is with them. The angel of the Lord is with them. In fact, we're going to see that truth manifested later on. The pillar of fire and the pillar of the cloud. The constant reminder of Yahweh's presence. So let's continue on as, as he makes that known. Verse 23 is a pivotal verse that the English can't capture. It just falls short. Let's look at this. It says, I will put a division. Let me just read the whole thing. I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. The word division there is the right word, but it doesn't go far enough. It doesn't capture what the word in Hebrew means. The word in Hebrew is padut. It means a division by way of redemption. Oh, praise God, praise God. In fact, I, two translators, two, peop, two, two of the commentary folks that I follow who are, are technical in their knowledge of the, of the Hebrew language, it was neat to see them translated as this. They said, thus I will set a redemption between you. They just got rid of the word division because it's implied in the word redempt, in, in the redempted doing of what he is doing. One people I'm going to, be, to redeem, the other people I am going to punish. Boy, do we not know that's the truth of the gospel? Turn, repent, don't stand in the judgment, the righteous judgments of God. We see that way back occurring here. So let me, let me play out this understanding of redeem or this, this, the definition of being redeemed because redemption has so much packed into it. If, we just, if I just assume you know what's going on, and particularly in this context, you might miss some of the beauty here. So in this context, we need to understand this is the context of redeeming a relationship, not an object, but a relationship. To redeem someone is to recover the relationship by some sum. Something has to be given, something must be done in order to redeem or, or recover the relationship. The Israelites are alienated in a sense of their depravity from God, just as we are. There has to be something that is done to redeem people. We, we call Jesus Christ uh, our Redeemer. We understand that this is, in fact, this is one of the reasons why this church is called Redeemer Reformed Baptist Church, because we want that constantly. It's a person, it's a person, it's a person. It's not a concept, it's, it's, it's a person that has done this. So we understand that to redeem someone is to recover the relationship by some payment of some sum of something. Redemption is a biblical concept that progressively God is giving us more and more information so we understand it. We don't see, oh, this is in the Old Testament, God says right out of the gate, this is redemption, and that's, just, that's, a, that's the definition, and it carries through the whole way. No, he's, he's adding to it. He's giving us progressive revelation. He's giving us what we can understand at the time, being that people group, and he has a plan. He's going to reveal more and more over the progression of time. So we, what we see here, we see a lesser form of redemption pointing to a greater form of redemption in Christ Jesus. Get that. Don't try and pack everything in this word that you know of redemption at this point. This is just what the Israelites would have known. In today's account, God is redeeming his sinful people, the Israelites, by taking payment of their sins. I'm not going to give you an answer for a second. Where do you think he, who, who do you think provides the payment 
for the Israelites' sins? Who is going to receive the just punishment that the Israelites deserve? There you go. You bet. It's the Egyptians. God is going to give, God is going to punish the Egyptians to bring about the redeeming of his people. God is going to punish somebody else so that we are redeemed. Do we not know that truth in the gospel? This is the first we're starting to see that concept. That punishment, God's righteous punishment on the Egyptians is being taken into account or it's, it's paying the debt, at least it's picturing paying the debt. It won't, doesn't pay it perfectly now. It's just a lesser form, a foreshadowing of the payment or the atonement that will ultimately be fulfilled by Christ. And you go, oh, wow. I'm starting to understand a whole new concept of what he's doing with these plagues. It's not just one-dimensional punishment on the, on the people of God for falsely uh, uh, worshiping a uh, false god. This is dealing with God being just. Uh, let me put it this way. God being merciful because I deserve the plague. We are the Israelites deserving of the plague. We are the ones that see God's grace and mercy instead of having the plague come upon us. In, as I would talk to you about this idea of the progression of, of redemption and this thought, I want you to think about this. The Israelites don't know their God. They've had 400 years of being influenced by the Egyptian rule over them. Think how quick a generation forgets their God. I think back, 23 years old, when, I, when, I, when God changed my heart and I accepted Christ, when God changed my heart and I realized God did the work in Christ and I repented, let me say it better that way, I think of what the culture was then. And I look at the culture now. I'm coming up on the uh, age 58, and the culture is disgusting. We are so lost. We are, we are the ones that when, in Romans, when it talks about celebrating and promoting the sin, we are in that, that. I never thought I would see it in my lifetime. That's what's happening now. So now you, you say, okay, that, that's what, do the math on it. I, don't, I, I can't do the math quick enough. I was a cop instead of a, a, a mathematician for most of my life. The point is, 400 years of that? How much devolving do you think the Egyptians, based on their knowing what they, their forefathers did, do they have they, or how much assimilating of the culture have they done in their understanding of who Yahweh is? Well, Yahweh is, is letting them know who he is as much as the Egyptians and the rest of the world know, I am the only all-powerful all God. There is no other God before me. And so this is the message. This is what they, they need to understand. He's going to take the Israelites out to Mount Sinai to give them the law that Pete so graciously shared with us. It gives them an understanding of how to relate with God. It is not an evil thing. It is a good thing to know the law because the law describes our character of our God. He's going to give them the law, but what is he also going to give them? He's going to advance the understanding of redemption. He's going to introduce the sacrificial system. We're going to move from not just knowing that someone else is going to get punished in this plan of redemption, we're going to, we're, and that ultimately the firstborn must die. That's all in the plagues. We're going to move to Le the Leviticus book, and we're going to see that 
Oh, this whole understanding of sacrifice? This person who dies, this person who dies has to suffer, their blood must be shed. That's the picture of the animal's blood. And we see the significance of the blood. This Christianity isn't just, you know, you have to, you're trying to explain it to somebody, yeah, I don't know why, it's just gross. We do, we, they did that back then. We don't, it doesn't really mean a lot to us. Oh, yes, it does. It means everything to us. The blood is what, what covered our sins. The blood is what cleanses us. The blood is what sets us apart as a distinct people. So we see this progression. We are not there yet, but I want you to see this progression, this understanding. Let's continue in this. There is another distinct component of our God. This distinct component, it, it will be death by a firstborn, by way of suffering. His blood will be shed. And we learn it's the Son of God. No other religion. Do not ever back down that, uh, and, and acquiesce to all roads lead to God. No, they do not. There is only one Son of God who was the firstborn. When it says firstborn, it's not suggesting that, that Jesus Christ was born. The word in the understanding is foremost or the highest of esteemed. That's who Jesus Christ is. He's not a created being. That is the one who shed his blood for us. And so we're, our understanding of what God is doing in and through this passage today, uh, hopefully is, we're getting a better understanding, a better appreciation, but there's one more aspect. Ten plagues. Why ten? Why not nine? Why not eight? Ten plagues. Ten is the number in the Bible that God uses over and over again, whether it is in the, the Hebrew understanding of this or whether it is in the, the uh, New Testament understanding, which is really a reflection of the, of the Old Testament. It is an understanding that ten brings about completion or fullness. When we look at the, the plagues, we as a people, understanding what the challenge is today, understand that when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he took on the suffering, the severity of the plague that his father determined he would have placed on his shoulders for our salvation. So the ten plagues is foreshadowing what we already know, that somebody else is going to be punished. That somebody else is actually Jesus Christ. He sustains the severity and the completeness of all the sins that you have ever committed, that you are currently committing, whether it was, I'll say, current as of the last week, and what you will commit. It's all covered. It's pictured in, there's a direct, I, don't, I want to be careful by using the word direct, there is a, a connection here that we understand why the ten. It's the completeness. So that when you think about Jesus Christ, you don't just think about, oh, I kind of remember the, Maybe the beard being pulled. I remember the suffering he did there. Or remember, you know, know, they mocked him. That was kind of suffering. No, you need to understand. When he was on that cross, he bore the full weight. And if you have a hard time understanding what that weight is, look at the ten plagues. The full weight of the sins that we deserve to be punished with, but that he took upon himself. And so we see another dimension to the plagues. And, And the scripture just comes alive with understanding. And we start to grow in our appreciation We need to allow the knowledge of the severity of each plague to help you and me grasp what Jesus suffered in order that you and I could be redeemed, set apart as highly prized adopted children. Amen and amen. I needed that reminder this week. 
in my own temptations to sin. Really, Nick? Do you understand the cost? Are you going to so flippantly fall to that sin again? Seriously? Dwell on what you're getting ready to preach and preach it to your own heart. You either repent and trust in Jesus' work on the cross as satisfying all your sin, or you will have to sustain the plagues forever. You will play the role of the Egyptians forever if you do not repent, because there is only one person that can take on the full weight of the plague, and that is Jesus Christ, and he did it. Let's continue on in verse 24. And Yahweh did so. There came great. The word great in English is a tough translation because we don't know if it's volume or content. It's a quantity or content. And I can tell you that from everything that I can see here, it is dealing, it, the word actually is kabed. It means uh, the weightiness, the heaviness. He grew, the, it says there, so see, listen to it this word. There came a heaviness of swarms of insects. It's their oppressing power, the oppressing weight. It's not the volume. He's already dealt with the volume. You're going to see him reflect the volume again here. But right here, you get an idea. This isn't a one, this isn't, oh, I can deal with this. I'll just hide in my house and I won't feel these, these, uh, this oppression of this plague. Oh, no, this oppression is truly felt by the people. And Yahweh did so, verse 24. There came an oppressing swarm of insects into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. The land was ruined by swarms of insects. Well, we know we have other plagues to come where they're going to take care of the vegetation. Land can't mean vegetation. Land is a metaphor for the ruining of the lives of the people. Remember we got that disgusting, grotesque picture of the flies everywhere? You can't open your mouth, you can't open your eyes. Do you think your lives would be ruined while that plague was going on on, this, on the earth? Yeah, that's the idea. It is complete. There is nothing these people can do to live and sustain themselves as long as this plague is in front of them, on them, biting them. Now, we move from an indistinct, excuse me, from a distinct people God has set them aside. He has divided them. He has caused a division. One is redeemed. One is going to be punished. And now we move on in in, uh, uh, verses 25 to 30. And indistinct, a fuzzy is what indistinct means. A indistinct obedience set apart for distinct judgment. And we're talking about the indistinct obedience of Pharaoh himself. So let's take a look at this. Exodus 8, 25 to 30. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. Oh, I bet he said that very, very upfront. Go. I can't stand this anymore. This is enough. But Moses said, it would not be right. The idea is proper to do so. For the offering we shall sacrifice to Yahweh, our God, are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? Hey, you're setting us up. We do this inside the land, and we're dead as a people. Your people will stone us. Continue on, verse 27. We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to Yahweh our God, as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, and there we get to see the beauty of, of Hebrew and what God is doing through Moses here, that, that uh, we get to see this, this deeper level conflict taking place. It said, here it says, so uh, Pharaoh said, and he says, I will let you go to sacrifice. All right, hold on. In Hebrew, there's an emphasis on the word uh, I. It's like, 
I, and let me give you the English, what might help. It's I myself will let, you, will let you go to sacrifice to Yahweh, your God, in the wilderness. And then you see only, and only acts as a qualifier. Only, I'm, I'm going to have this one stipulation in there. You must not go very far away. So what's going on here? Pharaoh's, God gave Pharaoh a command, let my people go to serve me. If not, if you're not going to send them out, I'm going to send, I'm going to send out the insects. This is an issue of obedience, but do you notice what Pharaoh does? Oh, that great deceiver. He turns it into an issue of permission. I will let you go. And then it's not even, a, 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 it's even worse from the standpoint of, his qualifier, he knows there's a, an, a, an obedience uh, aspect in there. And so he reduces, he controls, he tries to manipulate and say, you know, if you're going to obey me, I'm not going to let you go all the way out because I'm afraid you won't come back. I'm gonna, just don't go too far. I want control is what he is saying here. And we continue on. And then he says, plead for me. Now, come on. Come on, you're going to act like you are in control. And then you turn right around. And you say, now plead for me. He knows who's in control. Yahweh's in control. The magicians are long gone. They couldn't do it in the, in the last uh, uh, plague. They have no ability to stop this. And so he is left with only pleading. And he knows what happens when he pleads. Because when he pled for the frogs to go away, God removed him. He is in the very, it's the, what we call talking out of both sides of your mouth. I'm in control. Hey, but can you take care of this issue over here? Because I'm not in control over here. It's absolute hypocrisy. And yet he's trying to maintain this, this picture that he is this God. We continue on. Verse 29. Then Moses said, behold, and Moses flips it. Moses uses the I emphasis. And Moses says, behold, I myself am going out from you. Interesting. Remember, going out is it's actually yatsah. It's the verb over and over again, which means Exodus, to exit, to leave the presence of. Moses is back, right back at you, big guy. I'm going out. As a representative of God, I do what I do based on what God instructs me to do or what I feel compelled to do by, by who my God is. You control me not. That is all going on in, this, in this, this back and forth. Behold, I myself am going out from you, and I will plead with Yahweh that the swarms of insects may depart from, you, from Pharaoh from his servants and from his people. And I love this. We talked about it before. Tomorrow. Do you remember when he was asked, when do you want me to get rid of this plague? He, he so, Pharaoh so arrogantly said, tomorrow. I got the rest of today. I got that. You just take care of him tomorrow. Do you see what God through Moses is doing? Oh, you set the standard. I'll give you the standard. It would be nice for you to have it done today. But tomorrow is when I will, I will release you from this plague. Again, we see that uh, we, we see a qualifier here, only this time it's a qualifier for obedience. He says right, right here, only let, this is, this is Moses talking to Pharaoh, only let not Pharaoh, and the word in the ESV is cheat. I think it does a disservice only because we know Satan as the great deceiver. Pharaoh is the representative of Satan, as Moses is the representative of Yahweh. So I wish they, in fact, most of the, uh, the other translations use the word deceive. 
Uh, so we're going to use it. Only let not Pharaoh deceive again by, by not letting the people go to sacrifice to Yahweh. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to Yahweh. So what do we take from this? What's the lesson we learn, our takeaway here? Well, Pharaoh's qualified obedience is really just manipulation. It's a way of, of trying to, con- to continue in control when he can't. And before we, re- we think of ourselves as Moses in this passage, how many more times are we Pharaoh? God tells us in his word, God tells us in his law, God tells us in his precepts what we should do, how we are to relate to him. And we give God an indistinct, fuzzy obedience that says, I'll go this far, but I won't go that far. I'll start off, but you know, when it starts to get tough, I might need to step out for a little bit. Are we not acting like Pharaoh, arrogantly, manipulating or at least trying to manipulate God by this indistinct obedience. And I stand before you and say, guilty as charged. My prayer this week is, Lord, show me when I've got this fuzzy obedience. Make it known if it be my wife as my helpmate to show me because I'm blind to my own indistinct fuzzy obedience. Or show me myself as I stand in front of the mirror and preach each week and not follow through on my own obedience? What will you use? Who will you ask into your life to be willing to you invite them in to say, I'm tired of my old, indistinct, fuzzy obedience. I'm going to go, be all in. I don't know who that will be for you. I hope if, if there's, both spouses are here, that you guys will have a follow-up conversation and invite the other one to show you out of love for your Savior and really out of love for your spouse. Well, let's continue on. Finally, we move from a, a distinct people to an indistinct obedience. And lastly, we, we end up with a distinctly faithful God. The last uh, couple of verses here, Exodus 8, 31 and 32 says, And Yahweh did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of insects from Pharaoh. And listen to the thoroughness of this. From, from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people, not one remained. All the people are dealt with, and it's rele- they are relieved of this, of this plague. And all of the insect, all of the plague, that which God used to bring the plague, are dealt with completely. And, of course, we see Pharaoh's response. But Pharaoh hardened his heart, this time also, and did not let the people go. What an amazing contrast. You have Pharaoh hardening his heart, and you have our God showing mercy where none is deserved. I might even dare say none should be given. Only you, you and I stand there going, none should be given even to me. But God, what a good and gracious God. As we go into this Holy Week, remember the faithfulness of God to make a way to redeem you and me that included the death of his son, his only begotten son, Ponder the plague that Jesus distinctly bore. When you think of what Christ suffered this week, think through the plagues. On your, excuse me, ponder the plague that Jesus distinctly bore on your behalf and allow God to change what is needed in your heart, what is needed in my heart, for his glory 
and for our good. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almost holy God, we do thank you. You're an amazing God. There is so much depth to you and your truth and what you are doing in and through your word. We come back over and over again to your word, and we're just amazed at how much you fill it with. That We don't come back going, yeah, I know that one. And if we do, God forbid us. God, continue to do a work in our hearts. Continue to eliminate the truth. Illuminate, excuse me. Illuminate, brighten, pour light on it in our own hearts that we might grasp it, that we might embrace it, that we might cling to it, so that we might desire the change in our lives that bring forth glory to you as we exemplify the holiness of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.